So today I've got the great privilege of having Nancy Hiller join me on the show today. Nancy's written a book, Making Things Work, Tales from a Cabinet Maker's Life, amongst other books. And she's joined us to talk a little bit about the book and her experiences. So I think, Nancy, probably the first question, it's kind of traditional to ask about how you started woodworking. And I know you can share with the listeners your story about some of the antagonistic comments from your stepdad and you know how he challenged you to do the cabinet makers course. But I'm, I'm always sort of curious about whether people learn to make things or whether they have a desire to make things that's sort of inherent. And I was just wondering, going back to your, your early childhood, were you the kind of child who was always tinkering with things, always taking things apart? Or did the furniture making, you know, take you to a different step on that? I wasn't tinkering with things or taking things apart. I mean, some of my earliest memories involve toys that I liked to play with that were involved some kind of building. So for example, we had these flint stones. I don't know whether you had the flint stones in South Africa. It was a cartoon series on the television. And so there were these flint stones building blocks that were basically like giant Lego pieces. This is before all the other Lego parts came, just the basic building blocks before, you know, they started coming up with all kinds of fancy Lego parts and people. So they were just kind of like bricks that interlocked and they were made of expanded polystyrene, that is styrofoam. And so you could build little houses that were big enough to get inside. I mean, they weren't life-size and they weren't even playhouse-size, but they were big enough that you felt like you were building things with them. And I used to love, I just remember trying to persuade my mother to let me stay home from school and play with those things. So there was that. And then there was also a toy we had that was, I think it was intended to teach little girls how to sew. And so it was a piece of sort of high density fiberboard probably with holes drilled or punched in it and it came with some lace like shoelace type material and the idea was that you could sew things together you know by putting these parts together and sewing them with this lace and then the other one that i will never forget is a um it may sound really bizarre but we had these little books of they were sort of scenes and they were plastic pages and you would peel off these sort of self-adhesive designs and make them into patterns and I remember playing with those when I was especially when I was ill in bed like with the mumps and I don't remember wanting to take things apart and figure out how they were made, but I remember enjoying making patterns and building things in these ways, as well as when we lived near the beach and we would go to the beach and I loved digging canals for the water to go in and making castles and stuff like that. For whatever reason, I don't know whether I was given messages about, no, don't take that apart. But I rather doubt that, knowing my parents. I just didn't gravitate towards taking things apart and figuring out how they work the way that many kids do. 
So there was that. And then the other very um, vivid memory I have is that I always liked to rearrange the furniture in the living room or in our bedroom that I shared with my sister. First of all, it was a way to influence my surroundings, but it was also a way of changing my perspective on things and enjoying a new perspective. And even though I would not have been able to articulate that in these terms when I was six or whatever, I know that's what I was doing because I remember the feeling of, oh, it looks so cool that way, you know. So those were my first memories that are related to the work I ended up doing. And I guess that there's certainly some elements of that probably coming through in terms of what you love. If you're taking a kitchen and you're doing work on it or you're adding a piece to a room, there's also those elements of improving the room and changing the room and bringing something new to the room, I guess. Definitely. Always, yes. It's interesting to me just, you know, where maybe the roots of the creativity comes from. And, you know, I did shop class because it was kind of compulsory when I was at school. And, you know, I see my kids now where that's sort of falling out of the curriculum. And I, you know, I wonder about whether that is a good decision or not, because I I think those, maybe those early memories of just watching a role model do something or being allowed to, you know, just go for it and uh, build something, get inside of something. I think that there must be some element of that that carries through that just removes the fear. I mentioned shop class. I was useless at it. I think I got 35% in my final year. And if they hadn't added woodwork and metalwork and technical drawing together, I would have failed the year. I really I had, no, I had no patience when I was younger. My vivid memory of high school here was just thinking this wood thing is terrible. It always just splits at the most inconvenient time. So it's a bit ironic that you know I find myself doing that now. But I think that hands-on, whether it was creating something beautiful. And I, I saw somewhere your um, toy that you made of the sort of crocodile, you know, and that's way beyond the sort of toilet roll holders and things we were making at school. But even though they were horrible, they took away that fear so that I could come back 10 or 15 years later and pick up a tool and do something with it and, and not see it as this foreign country or something that was just completely, you know, different from what, what I could do. Yeah, I think that, well, I mean, I don't think. I know that a lot of the curriculum in schools is driven by a desire or need to be quote-unquote relevant to the needs of the larger economy. And certainly for the past 30 or 40 years, shop skills and the types of mechanical skills that have traditionally been taught in the, well, especially in the 20th century and shop classes in the early 20th century, have not been seen as, to some extent, relevant, but also as worthy of anyone who was considered or considered him or herself intelligent. So there's been this long-standing diminution of the value of the trades for intelligent people. And so in the late 20th century, the tracking of students, certainly in English schools, so that students who were at high school who were not so academically inclined would be encouraged to go into the trades after their O-level exams. That is after, I believe, the equivalent, roughly, of junior high school in America. 
and those who were good academically would be encouraged to pursue advanced level exams and then perhaps go to university. And today, you know, as of maybe the last 30 years, certainly the last 20 years, the norm is pretty much, oh, you've got to have a college education that is a university education because without it, you won't have a chance of being employed long term or getting a good job, which is to say a well-paid job. And of course, since the publication of Matthew Crawford's book, Shop Class as Soulcraft, and I can't remember whether it came out in 2006 or 2009 at this point, those presumptions have been challenged by, I mean, they were being challenged, certainly going back into the 1960s and 70s by many backlanders and hippies who became carpenters and house builders and fish aquarium builders and yacht builders and outfitters. But then, of course, the hippie era sort of faded and we got back into this sense of, no, everyone needs to have a university degree. And so it was great when Crawford published his book because he gave a very highly respected, academically trained, intellectually admirable voice to what many people had been thinking. And it went back way back, of course, it's ages old. And even in the 20th century, there were earlier waves in the 1930s and later of people wanting to get out of what we now think of as the rat race, meaningless work, and live a life that was more organic and connected to the sources of our being. That is, in terms of building our own home or furniture and gardening, growing food and such. So Matthew Crawford made a big difference, in my opinion. I mean, I had, before I wrote Making Things Work, I had already begun writing a book that was, it would have been sort of along the lines of Matthew Crawford's book, but it's great that he ended up writing that book because he has a doctorate in philosophy from the University of Chicago and was able to articulate these arguments and provide profound insights into the cognitive dimensions of manual labor that I certainly couldn't have, and most people haven't, even to this day. And so he has certainly provided some artillery, or I don't like warlike metaphors, but he has given a lot of validity to the claims of many people, whether or not they were or are good at academic subjects who didn't want to go to university and wanted or do want to make a living in the trades or in the arts or in agricultural work. He has provided all kinds of rationales and argument fodder for those slash us against the opposition of parents or career advisors and other people. And of course, that's just one tiny, tiny bit of insight into the value of his book, which has worth on many different points. It's definitely worth reading. You know, I certainly remember when I was young, you know, my dad was very much in this movie of you're a, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, if you're slightly retarded, you're an accountant, you know, that was, you know, and that was where it, <laughs> that was where it ended. Um, I, I can say that as a, as an ex-accountant, um, you know, but 
that was very much his worldview was that you would go to university, get a degree, get a honors or, you know, um, some further degree after that, go and get a well-paid job. And that that was the definition of success. There was nothing other than that. And um, I'm glad that these counterpoints are being brought about. I don't want to romanticize living in the 17th or 18th or 19th centuries, but I, but I do feel that for much of history, that ability to work with your hands and to do different skills was valued. You know, you, you were considered a, an exceptional individual if you could do a lot of things, including manual labor. And, you know, I, I think Joshua Klein's book about Jonathan Fisher, you know, springs to mind with, you know, a parson who was also a furniture maker, inventor, etc. But he, he was respected in his community because of a group of skills. And yet, you know, I think in the last, let's say, 50, 60 years, that seems to really have fallen right behind in terms of not being recognized. And I do think, though, that maybe this next generation is the one that will start championing again, because there does seem to be a lot of respect for making and the intent of making and that desire to do something with your hands. So I think, you know, my kids will grow up in a generation that that recognizes that as being good and meaningful work. I suspect that for a while, and reading your book, it's certainly clear in there, it's, it's going to be a struggle choosing that as a, as a lifestyle. You know, it's not without challenges running a business or trying to make that commercially viable. But I, th- I think the, the meaning in it is being recognized. And, you know, this, this year has been a very interesting one for me. There's a young guy I'm mentoring, and uh, I think much to a close friend of mine's disgust. He said, you've got to work with Henry and you've got to get Henry right. He wants to do this film stuff. And he's such a good salesman. You know, can't you have him work in a call center and just get some proper business experience. And we did that. And I spent time with Henry and I said to Henry, you know, I think, I think that if you follow what you like, that, you know, eventually the success will come. But saying at 20 that you must go after this definition of success and do something you hate, you've got a hell of a long life ahead of you doing something that's, that's meaningless, you know? And then this year we sit there and I said, so, you know, you were advocating that Henry would have gone and joined a corporation and done whatever, which are now, retrenchments and furloughs and out of business and half salaries and all the rest of that. Meanwhile, he was, let's be fair, quite meager in terms of what he was being paid and the job he was doing, but he's loving it. So, so this year, we've all been uh, forced to take a salary cut and, and do what we're doing. There's some people who are doing what they enjoy for that, you know, for that lower salary. And there's some people who are in corporate that are, <laughs> are not enjoying what they're doing at all. And, and this year hasn't been the year for getting a lot of financial reward for that. So I found it an interesting year just in terms of juxtaposing those two worlds. Yeah. I hear what you're saying about doing what you love. I think that often when you pursue what you love, you end up learning so much about what you love that you don't want to do it anymore, as I did early on. And then either you get out of it or you figure out new definitions or understandings of what it means to love what you do. But then the other thing is, I think about all the people I know who are in the arts and entertainment business. We have a lot of friends who are musicians, for example, or actors, and, you know, they can't perform for money right now, most of them. Or if they are, it's radically reduced because it's they're doing it by Zoom and making much less money. It's not enough to live on. So it isn't just about doing what you love. I mean, there always has to be some kind of economic viability or you create the economic viability, ideally. But I think that there's always a dialectical relationship between doing what you love, doing what you have to do to make money. 
you're constantly, you know, you can be doing what you love. I mean, I love what I do now, making furniture and writing, but I'm constantly having to sell my work, deal with clients. I think part of loving what you do is learning to love it. It's some of the time, I think, in many people's cases, perhaps it's more like an arranged marriage where you can come to love what you do, even though it's not what you set out to do because you loved it. You use love in that context. I know you've also, um, you know, via blog posts and, and, and some of your concepts, you've also spoken about passion and expanding on the passion about doing something, which is not only about love, it's also kind of about that pushing through the tough times and and making it work. So, you know, there's that romanticism sometimes that say, oh, we'll do something you love and that, you know, every day then is going to be rainbows and unicorns. And I don't expect that, but that if you're doing something with meaning that's important to you, that does give an energy to make it work that you might not have had if you weren't as engaged with, with what you were doing. Right. And I think that uh, I don't know enough about South African culture to say this, but certainly in America, I do not have any hesitation in saying there is a very right-based sense of what love is. That is, it's supposed to be very easy. It's supposed to be pleasant. And I don't just mean romantic love, you know, of another person, but the idea is it's love, it's all good. A deeper sense of love, a deeper understanding of love or passion includes the discipline and the responsibilities that go along with it that are really love in action. That is love as a verb, you know, not just finding something pleasant, but the action of showing love to someone else or an animal or a garden or, you know, what you do, your vocation or your employment. And I find that in this country, there is far too little. I think there's insufficient emphasis on the importance of shouldering responsibilities in terms of what you do. I mean, and that's going to come off as simplistic. What I mean is the responsibility to invest yourself fully in what you do and somehow creatively learn to love it. I don't care. If you're cleaning toilets at an airport, you can love that. And I say that I haven't cleaned toilets at an airport, but I've had many jobs in my youth cleaning houses. You can learn to appreciate different aspects of that work. It too can be creative, just as can washing dishes and sweeping the floor. I mean, one of the people I interviewed for the blog series I write for Lost Art Press, which Chris Schwartz at Lost Art Press named the Little Acorns series, was I interviewed Freddie Roman, who is an extraordinarily accomplished furniture maker, who, in addition to making exquisite reproductions, and not reproductions, some of them are new riffs on federal-style furniture, also remodels houses and does window restoration. And when I loved interviewing Freddie, and I have enormous admiration for him because, well, for many reasons, his parents both came over to the United States from Puerto Rico in search of a better life. And they made a better life. And he talks beautifully about how 
he doesn't put it in these terms, but how creatively his father has approached his job as part of his work is cleaning bathrooms and professionally um, as his career that has been part of his career. And Freddie talks about how his father taught him that if you can make a toilet bowl so shiny that you can see your reflection in it, that too is good work. And I absolutely believe that. And, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people who would think that I've lost my mind for saying something like this, but it is part of the discipline of finding meaning. It isn't just a matter of looking for meaning. It's out there somewhere. I'm going to find it. You make it. You create it. As human beings, that is among the most creative things we can do, making meaning in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. So, for example, I've read excerpts of diaries of people who were slaves in America, and some of them were honestly, in their own way, far freer than many of us are in our freeness, our freedom, because of how they saw the world and their place in it. And in no way do I mean to let the institution, the evil of slavery off the hook. I'm just saying that no matter what your circumstances are, there are ways that you can be creative in them. And I don't think that we appreciate that ability that we have as humans sufficiently. And I also just want to go back to what we were talking about earlier on the topic of academics versus the trades and, you know, this idea that, well, not everybody needs to get a college education. And that is manifestly true. On the other hand, I don't want to be seen, as I have been, in fact, by some of my former professors, as suggesting that there is no value in a college education. To the contrary, my undergraduate and graduate education here at Indiana University were transformative for me. I mean, they made me far more articulate and insightful. I gained a wonderful, just invaluable appreciation of the importance of history. So I think that the two go in tandem very much. You studied Hebrew and Aramaic, if I'm correct. Very briefly. I worked in IT for quite a while. And at one point, I went back to my boss and I said, I'm going to go and do a a Bachelor of Arts in English. You know, and he said, Ray, how's that going to help your career? And I said, you know, Ian, I don't think it's going to help my career, but I feel that I need to learn something new now. And the funny thing is, I think, you know, English is possibly a bad example because I would suggest that language skills have a lot of application in a business context. You know, it wasn't too much later I was writing his apology letters to the, you know, to the business for the IT outages for him. So, you know, there was, there was certainly some application of that, but I got so much out of spending a year learning English and writing analysis on poetry and things that were really not related at all in any way to what I was doing. But that process of learning was good. So to your point, I think that whether it's a college education or any form of learning, I guess, that stretches you at any point in your life, I think those, you know, it's a great and worthwhile endeavor to get a new learning, whether you apply that day to day or not. I think we all grow and it's almost like that phrase that you can't unsee something. You know, once you've been exposed to a learning, it's always with you, whether it's being applied every day or not. 
But I do want to just jump, you know, a little bit back to what you said about love as a verb. And you really, you took words right out of my mouth. I was in boarding school and we had these lectures by ministers and priests on a Sunday evening. And I think probably in five years, I remember one or two sermons, but one that stuck with me literally for decades now was a priest talking about love as a verb and not love as a feeling of happiness or used in that context of romantic love and bells and whistles. But, you know, he said often he dealt with marriage counseling and he would say to the husband, have you loved your wife? And he said, no, no, I'm not in love with her anymore. And he says, no, no, but love your wife. And he means love as the verb in terms of doing things, that demonstration of love by not about how you feel, but by the actions of what you do. So so I loved that that was kind of something that you phrased there because I think love of something is by no means a, a get out of jail free card that just says everything will be easy because of that. You mentioned Lost Art Press and you know I'm, I'm sure in writing your book, I know in your foreword, you, you mentioned some individuals and some chains like Jim to Megan to John to Megan again and you know um, people that have helped you. And I really must say that in my experience in the the hand tool world. I mean, I found the people to be incredibly willing to give of their time and you'll ask someone a question and the next thing he's written to Adam Cherubini and Adam Cherubini's answered, which, you know, for me still feels like a rock star moment, you know, when you've seen someone somewhere in the press and they get back to you. But that's largely in the context of, I would say, hobbyists and craftspeople. Whereas you began in this, what I'd paraphrase as a sort of gruff, blue collar English really quite a chauvinistic environment. So in your experience, has has that changed a lot? I've got a 12-year-old daughter and I was just wondering when when I was reading your book, do you think that the world's a bit more open today to that? Or do you think if she went and worked in a cabinet maker shop, she was going to face many of the same challenges that you faced? Well, the first thing I would say is that the culture of different shops varies widely. But on the whole, in general, things are much more open to females today than they used to be. I mean, it's actually night and day, really. I've even had men tell me that they feel discriminated against because they feel like women get more opportunities now, which is ridiculous, actually. I mean, in terms of just generalities on the whole, it's ridiculous. I'm not saying that individual men don't have experiences of competing with individual women for particular jobs or slots or scholarships. Obviously, they do in any field. But on the whole, I would say that there's much more acceptance of women in the trades. I also do think that there's considerable backlash still. And it seems to me, based on some anecdotes I've heard from some younger women in particular, the backlash may be even stronger against certain people now that it just seems like the more successful women become in showing that we can do the work and we belong in the trades alongside men, as in most fields of endeavor, there will always be certain people who think, who feel slighted or left out or resentful. And I think often the resentment and other stuff they're feeling is related to other psychological and cultural and emotional crap. But they bring it to bear in their response to women entering traditionally male 
field? So there's still resistance in many places. The other thing is just going back to your point about the difference in culture between the world of people who do furniture making and woodworking as a hobby or a pastime and those in traditional shops. Well, I mean, even these words are generalizations because there are traditional shops of all sorts. And really, it's true to repeat myself, each one has its own culture. So it's hard On the one hand, you have to generalize about such things. And on the other hand, I kind of hate to generalize about them because there are shops where I found a place at least temporarily working and felt okay working there or even embraced working there, but then eventually left. And for me, it was the leaving was less about being a woman than feeling like if I'm going to do this work, I don't just want to be the person putting the things together, building other people's designs. I want to be part of the whole process because then it's more fulfilling to me. So I wanted to be the person who also talks to the clients and discusses whether or not it's a good fit to have me build their job and design their job. And then I wanted to do the design work and work with them and then install it and deliver it. You know, I like to be part of the whole thing because then I feel truly responsible and truly engaged. And for me, that translates to a kind of satisfaction that I otherwise don't get. It also, of course, brings with it the cost of running your own business. And that isn't just a financial cost. It's a cost, all kinds of existential costs. And, you know, like to the point where you feel like you're never really off. It's not ever really time off. And so there are trade-offs, but it's where I am. But I can't remember, you started off talking about your 12-year-old daughter, um, There are certainly shops I know of today where, well, I wouldn't want to work in them. And then there are, because I'm a woman, but also I think some of the men I know wouldn't want to work in them either. And in those cases, it really is a matter of the culture, you know, which is an expression of the person who owns or manages the shop or the kind of work they do. So I think you just really have to look at particular people and particular shop cultures. But yes, to reiterate, yes, on the whole, I think the world of furniture shops is more open today to women than it used to be. And I guess, you know, there's also maybe another aspect of that is is with the sort of social media and the visibility of what people are doing, it's possibly also easier now to find an audience for what you were doing. You know, I would, would imagine in 1980s England, if you wanted to go work in a cabinet shop, there were a certain amount of opportunities and you had to work in that space. Whereas today you possibly have more freedom that if you are doing something well, that there is a way to put that out into the world and that maybe recognition or the customers will find you because that's what they are are interested in. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So maybe just moving across to talking about making things work. And I know when I first dropped your mail, I sort of erroneously described it as an autobiography. And I think that's because of the, you know, just the fascination I had with the anecdotes and the characterization. And, you know, so I put a lot of emphasis into that. You mentioned that 
you know, shop class to soul craft is also kind of a scholarly, you know, a serious, you know, discussion about um, some elements. But just interested in terms of your journey with the book is, you know, what did you originally set out to do with it? And how did it morph? And what did you want to achieve with it, you know, in terms of its original and, and I guess its final iteration? Well, it went through many stages. <laughs> I started wanting to write it before I had written any books. And so I started working on bits and pieces of it. And, you know, there are these people, there are many people who have written books about writing and they say, just write. You just have to sit down, force yourself to sit down, make it a habit, like half an hour or an hour every morning before you do anything else and just write. It doesn't matter what you put on the page, just write. That does not work for me. I find that if I do that, I end up with just a bunch of mental masturbation. It's just crap. And I am just one of those people who... And I know there are so many people who say, oh my God, that is the last way you should write. I have to get the first sentence. And until I get the first sentence right, it may not be the first sentence in the last draft, but the first sentence has to be right. And the first paragraph has to be right before I can go on. And so it's a very slow and sort of tortuous process. That is to say, it's circular. I'm constantly going back and rereading and seeing how does the logic of that flow? And then as I get farther and farther out from that, did what I just wrote in this chapter contradict what I said in the first one? So it's just constant going back. And my dad is a writer and we talk about writing a lot and I have long compared my writing process to a spider spinning a web in that, you know, it always comes back to the center and then out again. And also it's coming out of you and it's a very slow process. And that's how I write. I mean, a lot of people read stuff I've written and they take, how do you do this? It just seems to just come out of you fully formed. And of course, if it seems like that, then that's probably just a testimonial to how much time I spent rewriting because everything I do is just, it's a constant process of reworking and rewriting. And then, so when I first started writing the book, I thought it would be, it would be a book about making. And I didn't even use that word in the way we use it now. I was going from an early well, a mid-1980s book that was written by a philosopher and English professor, Elaine Scarry, who is like mega brain intellectual. And in the first course that I took at Indiana University in religious studies, the professor used part of this book. The title of the book is The Body in Pain, The Making and Unmaking of the World. And it's an extremely dense book. It's an absolute torment to read, but it's utterly fascinating. And I found it transforming. It just totally transformed how I see the world. You just have to really work at reading it. And again, rereading and rereading and rereading it, like many of the best books. And one of the things Scary mentions in her book, at some point in a more reflective area, maybe in a preface or introduction or something, she says, 
we've really only begun to think about the process of making and world making. And I'll leave it up to scholars of the future to write about that. And so I thought, well, I can write at least something about that. My problem is, well, I have endless problems, but part of my problem with writing or building is I'm very end oriented. I need to feel like if I'm going to write something, I want it to be under contract or I want to write it for, this is why I do custom work. I want to know who I'm writing for and how I can best write it for that venue or that person or that family or that house. And so I never made enough progress on that iteration of the book because there was there was nothing. I was just, I just wanted to write it. So that was the start of the book. And then I had got some way into that when a student in a course I taught at Kelly Mailer's School of Woodwork pointed out an essay by Matthew Crawford that was actually, it turned out to be sort of extracted from the book Shop Class as Soulcraft. So when that book came out, I thought, oh, well, I can't write that book anymore because now it's been written and he did a way better job than I would have of doing it in this way. So I kept writing and thinking about how I could change it. And in the end, there was this flurry of other books that came out that were related. So for example, Peter Korn's book. And so I thought, okay, well, I have some material here. And I mean, at this point, I should just go back a little and say, one of the things I wanted to do with my book was also demolish some of the romantic fantasies that many people had about what it might be like to make a living as a furniture maker. And so I had started writing some anecdotes down about that drawn from experience. And in the end, I just decided, well, people have written the serious books that I thought I might write, or they have addressed these topics that I thought I wanted to address. So maybe what I need to do is write a book that makes the points I wanted to make, but do it as the series of hopefully funny stories that are drawn from my own experience. And so that's how I ended up doing it because I am an ardent fan of David Sedaris. I don't know whether you're familiar with his book, but he's a humorist. He writes very funny books, most of which are drawn from his own experiences and reflections on his family and their experience. They're very well done and very funny. And at certain times in my life when I've been at a real low, I've found them to be, you know, a godsend. So that was why I decided, okay, it has to be funny. And one of the experiences that really cemented that idea that it had to be funny to the extent that I can write humorous stories was when I was in the midst of my most challenging job ever. And the challenge was the interpersonal challenge of dealing with the clients. And that one is the one that is related in the story called Cat and Mouse. And it was so absurd, so surreal that I thought, okay, that's it. I just, there's nothing to be done for it other than after each of these little conversations with these people, I have to write down what we all just said and turn it into a story because it's hard to believe that I am living through this. I've never 
I didn't know there were people like this. Well, I must say as a reader, you know, that I certainly found it amusing. And, and I think that there's some characters in there that these absolute archetypes of people we know, you know, I've, I've never taken commission work, but, uh, you know, I certainly understand that sentiment. I think you're right at the end of that chapter where someone says, oh, they owe me $600. It's just not worth collecting it. And I think, you know, that by the time you've got to there in that chapter and you, you really can visualize that scene. And I think we've all met someone like that or worked with someone like that. Um, Hopefully you don't have too many friends like that. I had a good chuckle. Uh, you know, I could feel you tearing your hair out as I was reading the books. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting you speak about the writing process. And I had a question that I'm going to ask, but it's even more interesting, I think, in this context is, you know, when I was reading books on writing, there, there were these sort of two camps. They always said that there's these people who plan their books and then there's people who evolve their books. And I think they always use... Uh, well, these days, they always use George Martin from Game of Thrones as, a, as an example of this gardener who has to get everything perfect and just see where it goes and see what happens. And, you know, that's why we 10 years down the line and still waiting for the book. And then, you know, they would use the Stephen Kings and Brandon Sanderson's and people as the alternate example who will plan out the book. They know how it's going together and then they can get in and they can write it. And in that context, you know, meeting a word count target every day makes a lot of sense because, you know, the framework is there and it's almost just like, you know, doing joints until you've got furniture. Whereas if you don't know what you're building, you know, and you're kind of playing with it and, and working on it, I mean, it stands to reason that will take longer, which brings me to my question is, although writing is maybe a, an interesting alternate income, I was reminded of an interview I had with Rex Kruger and he was saying, you know, he wanted to do a certain type of work, but, you know, there was one month where he had to just go and build a deck for his neighbor because he needed money to pay the rent. And he went to the neighbor and said, gee, you need a new deck because that was all he could think of selling. So in that context, making the commitment to write this and to put it together, did you have a publisher that had sort of taken the brief and was interested or was it just written with a view to when it's finished and it's done, you will find someone to publish it? I was very curious about that. Oh, God, such a painful experience. <laughs> I did not have a publisher, and it wasn't a book that my previous publisher, the Indiana University Press, would have wanted to publish. It wouldn't have fitted in with their books. What I wanted to do, well, I did, thanks to my friends, Lee and Eric Sandweiss. They put me in touch with an agent because I thought, no, this time I want to go with like a big publisher, like Penguin. And so they put me in touch with an agent who had helped Eric Sandweiss get a contract with Oxford University Press for a book that he had written. And this agent was very kind to take me on, you know, New York City agent. We talked about my ideas. I sent him some sample stories and we went back and forth. I don't remember for how long, maybe a year. It might even have been longer. We had a contract and it just never gelled. I don't remember the specific criticisms he had somewhere in a, a box. I have all of our correspondence still because I keep stuff like that. But it just wasn't coming together in a way that he could really get behind. He was very generous and very helpful. For example, he said, well, I do think that the story you have to lead with is living the dream. And that's why that is the first story in the book. 
I think he just felt like it was just too much of a hodgepodge, which is a fair criticism, it is. But then I was like, but David Sedaris's books are hodgepodges too, pretty much. I mean, you know. So in the end, we decided to part ways. And at Woodworking in America, the event which Popular Woodworking magazine put on for years. It was 2016, and Megan Fitzpatrick, who was the editor, content editor of across the whole spectrum of Popular Woodworking productions at that time, had invited me to give some presentations. And so I was there, and I was talking with her about the book. And she said, why don't you just publish it yourself? And I was like, I, I don't know how to do that. And if I did, I would want it to be a really good, you know, I would want it to be a professional product, not like so many self-published things. And she said, I'll edit it. You can pay me to edit it. I'm sure Chris will like it and help you sell it. And you can do it through signature book publishing or printing, which is a print broker, she told me about, that Lost Art Press uses. And so I looked into it, and and in the end, that's what I did. So at first of all, I took the basic material over to an editor who had been recommended to me by my friend Lee Sandweiss. And so this editor, Mary Spohn, she read it and or read parts of it and gave me some feedback in terms of the big picture, like joining it together and stuff. And I revised it based on her feedback. And then I just decided to do as Megan had suggested, because at that point I was just like, I got had this thing on my computer for so long I need to be done with it and see what I can do with it and so I paid Megan to copy edit the manuscript and Megan um oh no I can't think of her name the other Megan at Lost Art Press who does the book design of some of their titles Megan Um, Bates Yes, Megan Bates did the book design, and then it was printed through Signature Book Printing. Chris Schwartz ordered a copy, paid for it. I sent it to him and said a prayer because I thought, you know, if there's one person who could truly put the kibosh on this and make it a total money-losing operation for me, it is Chris if he pans it. And I was really concerned. So when he was enthusiastic, I was ecstatic and very relieved. And so, so yeah, it's, you know, on the whole... I mean, one of my furniture maker friends used to say, furniture making and writing. You chose two of the lowest paid professions, you know. But I mean, you don't choose them. It's more of a compulsion than a choice. And so on the whole, I make more money from designing and building things than writing. Writing does pay notoriously badly. But because of Chris's endorsement, I made much more money on that book. I can't say I made money if I were to compare the gross amount that I made or even the net amount to what I might have earned from just designing and building furniture and cabinetry. But this was a project that was really important to me. And so 
even though I had spent countless hours on it, I was going to do it and I did it. And it turned out that I did make a lot more money on that than on any of the other books I had. I had written for the Indiana University Press before that. And that's truly is because of Megan Fitzpatrick and Chris Schwartz, you know, their championing of that book. And also because I self-published it, which meant that I made a lot more per copy than I would have as an author. Typically as an author, with my other books, I might have made literally one or two dollars on a book that costs $30. So I am deeply grateful to them. And I don't know whether I answered your question. I think you did. And while we're talking about putting it together on the dust jacket, you've got the subtle arrangement of tools. And, and I know you mentioned it's kind of a, a homage in a way to Peter Korn's book. But what I found really fascinating there, and it's a question I just have to ask is, I know there's a bad saw and everyone deserves a bad saw, but there's this paint splattered screwdriver on the cover there. And I must tell you that for me, that was the thing that made me pick the book up and buy it. You know, maybe a ridiculous thing, but when I saw this, that screwdriver looks like it's got a story to it. So is there a story about that screwdriver or was that? Oh just... God, yes. You yeah. know, as you can imagine, no, that cover, I put a lot of thought and time into that cover. And I also consulted a lawyer who works for artists in our area because I didn't want to get sued, you know, because it clearly is, as you say, an homage and a sincere homage yeah. to Peter Korn and his book. But also it is a little bit of, as they say in England, taking the piss because all of those tools on his cover are so beautiful and pristine. And I just thought, I totally get this. And it's a gorgeous arrangement of tools. It's a still life. It's a piece of artwork. But it does not represent the reality of making a living in any of these fields. And so I took tools that I actually use every day and put them there. I talked with Mark Harrell. I said, I would like to have your saw on the cover. I'm going to send you a copy of the manuscript. And I want you to tell me whether it's okay to put the name of your tools on there. Because if you don't want to be associated with this book, that's fine. But if you're okay with it, then I'll put it with your brand name up. The screwdriver, and I can't remember which plane is on that cover, but I think it may be my first plane back from 1980. The screwdriver is from 1980. It's one of the oldest tools I own. And yes, I started in 1980. And so it is a plastic handled screwdriver. <laughs> and, and it's a Stanley from the hardware store, you know, and it just, it's a tool. It's not an end in itself you know, to speak philosophically. It is a means to an end, and tools can be means to an end. We don't have to just worship them. And so I think it's great that you saw the paint on that and that attracted you to the book, because that was my intention, was to just say, in this image, you know, there are some tools that are just anyone who does really fine work would recognize these tools. But the collection and the way that they're in also suggests to anyone familiar with working in the trades some of the realities, the exasperations, and the disasters 
but also underlie the experience, you know, that anchored the experience of many of us who work in the trades and have done for most of our careers. But you know that when Lost Art Press, you know that the book is now published by Lost Art Press. Because after two printings, I didn't want to take the risk of doing my own another printing and Chris said well can we you know negotiate with you for the rights and do the book as an imprint of ours and and I was honored and thrilled so it has a totally different jacket because he had had a conversation with Peter Korn. (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely loved it and I you know I think one of the things that I grapple with a bit is a sort of Instagram perfection, you know, and a, a little right. while ago, I just started putting out a hashtag bad dovetails because, they're, they're <laughs> so, they're, you know, there's, there's so much out there that's just, you know, firstly, the photography is incredible. So, I mean, I think that as a woodworker, you must invest a bit of time in that because when you show people what you do, if you can take good photos, it's going to make it look better. So, that, you know, I'll park that as, as a real skill, as a hobbyist. But the other thing is just, you know, these artistic photos where everything has been cleaned up and made beautiful and sometimes when I post I have to take half an hour to move all the the rubbish that's lying on the workbench and I have to move it away and and then I have to angle it right because outside the window there's our um, washing line and you know god forbid I should have uh, you know underpants but that would be perfect (laughs) and you know to me that's the real experience and I love the celebration of it you know I mean if you can take a good photo of a workpiece with nice lighting you know in in its final location that's fantastic but that's not the process and you know I saw that screwdriver and I the problem I have you know to to say why I was humming and hawing about your book is I was buying it on an overseas trip it was a kind of thing of you know, how many can I fit in, into the luggage before this starts becoming a, a real problem for me? And, you know, with it, as I said, that screwdriver for me was the was the tipping point. I think I could have walked out with the whole of Highland Woodworking's entire book section there. You know, there were there were so many things that I wanted to buy. And that screwdriver for me was, was one of the things that had it in the basket, out the basket, and then back in the basket and off to the counter. So I like that. The version I've got's also got the table on the cover, you know, and, and it, it seems like there's a little bit of, you know, fun you had there. I know you've got a previous book on English arts and craft furniture. And I wanted to just ask a question about that for a moment, because I don't think anyone would deny that that style of furniture is beautiful in its own right when you, you know, when you look at it as furniture. But for me, it also comes from a you know really fascinating period in you know in time, and I'm and I'm a bit biased here. You know, my pet project at the moment is I'm doing a narration of uh, Ruskin's Unto This Lost that I want to try and put out for the for the podcast because I really feel it's a, a forgotten or a tangentially referred to you know work, and it's normally you know Ruskin and Morris, and you know Ruskin and someone else, and Ruskin and arts and crafts. But I just wanted to ask, in terms of your love of the the arts and crafts furniture, is that that history and that that's style you know is, is it one or the other do you believe they can be separated because he certainly speaks a lot about the intent of what you're doing as being you know as important I guess as the end product and for you is that English arts and crafts special because of the time in history that it was or maybe if you could talk to that um have you read my book English uh, arts and crafts no I haven't I've got it that's on the Christmas list so um yeah oh, I, no, I, the reason I'm asking yeah. is because okay Megan Fitzpatrick asked me if I would write that okay. a book on English arts and crafts furniture and we talked about it and I, at first I thought mm, maybe I shouldn't I can't afford to write a book right now she was very 
she made it happen financially by, you know, arranging for one of the pieces to go into the magazine. And I mean, she is a whiz at making things feasible. But the reason I'm asking you is because when she first asked me, I thought about it. And then I said, okay, so the only way I will write this book is if you allow me to use Ruskin's Unto This Last as the foundation of the writing because well this is from the stones of venice i think but um the the moral elements of gothic that section it's just so brilliant i had read it when i was an undergraduate here at indiana university years ago and i was so taken by so much of what ruskin said and it really expressed so much of what the arts and crafts movement was about and of course it was foundational to the movement as a movement, but it also spoke so eloquently and articulately to my experiences as a professional craftsperson, you know, because Ruskin has diatribes against perfectionism. I mean, he talks about, yeah, it's a worthy goal. We should all strive for that, but don't discount the work that's done on the way that isn't perfect because it has all these other virtues to it. And in fact, in some ways, those virtues are higher than the smug satisfaction that you get when you feel like you've achieved perfection. So I think that that is such a brilliant piece of work. And so what I did was I took that philosophical foundation and came up with three different projects because being for popular woodworking for their books division, it had to have projects. So there are three projects and each project represents a different furniture form and a different ideal of the movement. So it was very much, you know, going back to what we were discussing earlier about writing, the skeleton framework I worked out early on. It's just how I fleshed it out, you know, that had some fluidity to it. But um, so to answer your more proximate question, I grew up with so much arts and crafts stuff in England when my mother took my sister and me to live there. I, it was just before my 12th birthday. And so much of our surroundings reflected that culture. So many of the buildings where we spent time were built at the turn of the century or in the first decade of the 20th century. And so it was like very familiar to me. And as time went on and I learned a little, little bit about the philosophy that underlay it and then read Ruskin when I was an undergraduate many years later here, that just, it made so much meaning of what I had seen naively and just being surrounded by. That is a, it's actually a desk on the cover of that book. And it's, it's my logo, my business logo now. But it is a desk that I designed drawing elements from washstands that were designed by the Harris Liebus Manufacturing Company in London at the turn of the century, which was actually a manufacturer, not like a guy designing exquisite furniture. And so, the Liebus company and the sideboard in that book, which is also the dust jacket of the English Arts and Crafts Furniture book, that is um, a big part of 
my book on English Arts and Crafts Furniture because that represents, I use the Libus company to discuss the tension in the arts and crafts movement between this emphasis on doing the best you can and working with the best materials and taking as much time as a project takes. I mean, all of that is so labor intensive, which translates to costly. And so there's a tension between those inputs, if you like. And then the fact that that makes so much of the work that was done by exponents of that movement unaffordable to the majority, the overwhelming majority of people, whereas a competing value of the arts and crafts movement, certainly expressed by Morris, was that everyone should have access to things of beauty and utility. And so you can't overlook that tension. In America, certainly, I think that it has been very commonplace to overlook that tension and only, especially among woodworkers and other artisans or craftspeople, it's very tempting to just focus on the input side and the ideals of the movement in terms of making and artistry without focusing on the other side, which is, but can people afford it? And so I think that someone who's done great work in this, but not necessarily in the arts and crafts mode, is Chris Schwartz, because with his Welsh stick chairs and his boarded furniture and staked furniture and his books showing people how to make their own furniture, he has done a great service to people, not only in teaching people woodworking skills, but in teaching people how to make things with which to furnish their own homes. And quite honestly, to go back to your very first question, that is why I got into this field. It wasn't because I was fascinated by making, it was because I wanted furniture and I couldn't afford it unless it was old junk, much of which is beautiful. And our house is full of old junk. And that is one of the main reasons why to this day, um, as a maker, designer and maker of furniture and cabinetry, I want my work to be affordable. Much of it is not affordable to people like me, but I do my best to work with people and their budget. As long as it's a cool design, I will really try to make it affordable to the extent that I can because I want people to have nice furniture just as I want to have nice furniture. I think it's very interesting you mentioned, Chris, there. I mean, you know, when, when I was reading your book, but also his, you know, anarchist tool chest there, I reflected back on when I was in varsity. And I, and I think he makes a point about, you know, when you're at that age in your life, you've got time, but time is certainly not money. And wouldn't it be wonderful if you could take that time and make something? And I thought about my experience in a tiny little bachelor pad, no furniture, you probably usual guy furniture, you know, big screen TV kind of thing and, uh, and, 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 no, and no chairs, you know. I'm sure I had a little computer game console or something in there, but books were on cardboard boxes and stuff. And it would have been such a great time if I'd been equipped with the skills to say, you know, my dad to say, Ray, here's some wood. Why don't you put a desk together or why don't you put a bookshelf together or, you know, whatever you want for your place, why don't you do that? And I mentioned my daughter, I've also got two boys and, you know, it's really my hope for all three of them that when they get to that age in their, their life, that they would come and say, Dad, can we borrow a couple of tools and can you get us some wood because we want to make something for 
you know, the digs. If I could achieve that, I would think that, you know, my upbringing has probably been a success because I, th- I think it would be wonderful. I think it would be wonderful for everyone if they had that kind of skill that says, I've got time on my hands and I can go and build something. I think, you know, I really love that sort of idea. I think you certainly answered the question I had on, uh, on the book, and I'm going to make sure that I actually order one before I put the podcast out because there were only a couple of them left on Amazon when I looked. So now that we've spoken about that on the show, you know, there, there might be a couple of people uh, chasing the book down. But I think it's very interesting that you chose that as a basis for that book because it's a work that I only became recently acquainted with. I just see so many parallels. And when you talk about this tension on efficiency, I think even as a hobby woodworker, I've got this tension because my daughter wanted a cabinet and, you know, I wanted it to be perfect. You know, dad had to build the best cabinet ever. And three years down the line, we didn't have a cabinet. And, you know, I think it's easy for hobbyists to say they've got the luxury of time and they can get the dovetails perfectly right because there's no pressure. But the pressure is, is that life passes and opportunities pass. So my most recent little kind of knockout project, which was literally a you know, couple of hours on the weekend, was a laptop stand for a friend because I was at his house. And I think it's very much a product of Zoom and laptops and looking up people's nostrils and, you know, terrible, you know, views or whatever. So he balanced his laptop on a pile of books. And I looked at this and I was like, this is a perfectly easy project for me to knock out a dovetailed box for him that I can put there where he can have something, you know, special. And he's a, a big fan of uh, Thor from the Marvel Universe. So I carved a little hammer in the corner. But, you know, the, 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 the whole thing took me... I would guess four or five hours. And the reason it took me four or five hours is because I used one of these big four foot, you know, frame saws and I resawed the wood and it was terrible on the backside. I mean, Shannon Rogers is, you know, was showing me videos of what he does. And, you know, he's telling me how he can take a one eighth veneer and, you know, I'm, I'm lucky if I can split a one inch board into two halves and, you know, get it to the bottom. And when I'd done that, you know, the, the backs were not great. I mean, you, you could plane them, but I was going to plane them to the point of being too thin to use if I didn't leave some, you know, roughness on the backside. And I thought, hang on, you know, one side's going down on the table, the other side's inside, it's not seen. I can go for perfection or I can give it to him tomorrow night when I'm seeing him for dinner, you know, choose one. And, you know, when you talk of that tension, I think it's also relevant to hobbyists because if you insist on perfection in everything, then your output comes right down. And that means there's people in your life who aren't getting that Christmas present or aren't getting that birthday present. Or, you know, my daughter, I'm I'm glad now that she's not going to move out of the house before I made the cupboard to store her baby clothes in, but the opportunity would have passed. So I I think that's a very real thing. And, you know, those kind of things jump out for me in the text, which is admittedly, it's not the, the easiest English to read always in some places, but I think the concepts are absolutely timeless. And, you know, for me at the moment, it's just, it's really a wonderful piece of work. I know it would probably be simplistic to also to talk about your book as a sort of, you know, one line sentence or one key concept or whatever. But, you know, for me, when I read a book like uh, Gary Rogowski's Handmade, you know, I came away and I've had this one thought, which I, you know, and I said to him, I, you know, I now talk about Rogowskiing it, which is just to be patient with yourself because you're working on yourself as much as you're working on the wood. When I read your book, the biggest takeaway for me was the if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly, which is something that is never championed. You know, <laughs> you know, it's always that if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well is championed. And and I guess if I if I was pushed, I would add on a comma and put and it's all problems as the two concepts. 
those were really big takeaways for me out of the book, this idea that it's worth doing badly and, it, and it's all problems. I mean, it, that certainly comes across in the book to me as a, as a key sort of concept of yours. Well, it's all problems is from my first boss, Roy, <laughs> my first furniture cabinet making boss. You know, so all credit goes to him. We now have a small community in Bloomington of people who say it's all problems. Things go bad on a regular basis. The other one came from middle school, you know, this idea where it just really was a quandary to me. Like, I didn't understand it. How can there be these two sayings? If it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. It took me years to think about how that second one could be true. It really comes back to what you just said. You know, what's badly? Get it done? You know, another expression here in the Midwest is done is good. That is, if you finished it, that is in its own way good. Or you could wait and do it perfectly and maybe never finish it. I mean, there's plenty of space in between those two extremes, but I do think it's important to get over that sort of, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Instagram perfection thing. I just have no patience with it. And it's used to market. It's used in, I think, very destructive ways to market things, just as you see among, you know, most infamously young girls, how these concepts of beauty and the perfectibility you can achieve by means of software, photo editing software. People internalize those ideals and then they feel like they're worthless because they don't embody them. Whereas in fact, maybe no one embodies them, but you don't know that because you're just seeing this digital, unreal world. So I think it's so important to challenge that kind of dogma even though it isn't presented, it's more insidious than dogma because it's just presented wordlessly. I think there's a lot of danger in that. And I mean, I, just at a pure statistics level anyway, even if we move away from, let's call that that evil manipulative sort of side of things, and we just went down to an exemplar of work, you know, whether that's carving or dovetails or um, a, a kitchen. The reality is, is there's 7 billion of us on the planet, and I would assume that there's someone who can do anything better than me. So if all I'm ever seeing is that, and I'm accepting that as normality, then there's a problem. I often talk to the kids about this whole idea of, do you want to live a Facebook life, which is just these moments that are the best of all of your friends, or do you want to just live a life? Because I don't believe that those tiny little high points of everything are representative. I saw... Um, some of Matt Bickford's progress that he's making on a piece on Instagram, you know, this last week, and it's mind-blowingly good. And I know that that's real. That's not Matt photoshopping pictures from a museum book together. I mean, that, that's what he's building. But that's not what 300 million woodworkers are, are making this week. We're probably using a bit of glue and sawdust to fill in a couple of cracks and checking whether it looks really badly in all lights or whether we can, you know, kind of fudge it and, and move on. So, I think it's important sometimes just to keep that sense of perspective about those sorts of things. Well, absolutely. But the other dimension to that is, do we all want to be making those things? You know, surely there's value in, and I'm not saying that Matt doesn't do these things or whatever. I know he's a well-rounded person with a family, but I mean, you know, is there value in gardening or 
working at the food bank or woodworking isn't the be all and end all, at least not for me. It's one of many things. Here's the dog. Before we sort of conclude, I mean, you've got a new book out, uh, Kitchen Think, and I have to be very careful not to make the Freudian slip when I pronounce that. It's a clever title and again sort of alludes to thinking about what you're doing and what to expect there. Chris Schwartz asked me to write it again. This was a book that actually had its genesis in a late night Instagram direct message from Chris to me asking if you come to Cincinnati anytime, maybe we could talk books. I don't even know if we had had a conversation in person by this point other than a brief moment at woodworking in america so we didn't know each other yet he wanted to know whether i would like to write a book about english arts and crafts furniture which was of course ironic because i wrote back and said surely you know i'm already under contract to write a book on that subject for megan at popular woodworking and he didn't know that So he said, oh, I thought you were writing a book about kitchens for them. So he said, well, is there anything else you'd like to write a book on? And we talked about a few ideas over the next couple of weeks, and we ended up, I don't remember how it even happened at some point. Maybe he said, well, would you write a book on kitchens for us? You know, because what I have in mind is something like he mentioned Jim Tolpin's book on cabinets, kitchen cabinets, build your own kitchen cabinets. And I said, well, that is a great book, but I don't want to write a book that would compete with that, partly because I don't like to write books that compete with other people's work whom I respect, but also because if I write a book about kitchens or anything, it has to have more content about ideas. I'm not that interested in writing about making things. That's what I do all day. I would much rather also write about making things in the context of ideas. And so, you know, we, again, we still really didn't, we hardly knew each other. And as the book developed, you know, we talked about stuff and it turned out he thought that I was going to be very much in favor of all the newest gizmos and gadgets. And my ideas about kitchens and cabinets are probably much more in line with many of his ideas about tools. That is, you don't need the latest thing. In fact, you're better off without it. Probably you really need to think about what you do in the kitchen and what is the kitchen and do you really want to rip out everything that's in your kitchen now and replace it because that's really, really wasteful. And especially if people are do when people do it and they say, oh, we're doing a green kitchen, we're doing it sustainable. It's going to be a sustainable kitchen using sustainable materials. And I'm like, then why are you tearing everything out? Because that is inherently wasteful. But so, I mean, it doesn't have to be wasteful, of course, because many of us then go on to repurpose the old stuff. But even so, it's wasteful of energy, potentially. So it's a book that there is a basic technique for building cabinets and doors and drawers in there and discussions of various hardware. But then there are also a lot of history of the kitchen. I provide that mainly as a way of relativizing our ways of thinking about the kitchen today, which is to say the latest ideas on kitchens are not like people haven't always had dishwashers, you know, and you don't necessarily need a dishwasher. We don't have a dishwasher and just challenging a lot of taken for granted notions.
And then there's also one of my favorite sections is just full of advice about how to avoid disasters. And it's all based on things I've done and learned from. So the idea is that you can save yourself a lot of headaches by reading this and then planning whatever you do in your kitchen to avoid these scenarios, such as perpendicular drawers that don't open because the knobs get in the way of both of them. It sounds stupid and like no one would ever do that, but people do it all the time. So it's just stuff like that. So there's a lot of practical advice. There's a lot of philosophical and principle stuff and history. And then there's my favorite thing is really there's a portfolio section of different kitchens and what went into making them and how people decided what to do. And two of the more notable kitchens in the book are Wharton Escherich's kitchen in Pennsylvania. He was a very well-regarded, famous maverick artist and sculptor and woodworker in the 20th century. And then the kitchen of Johnny and Becca Gray. Johnny Gray is an internationally respected kitchen designer in England who originally came up with the idea of the unfitted kitchen. And so their kitchen is in there with a bunch of interesting history about it and beautiful pictures, photographs taken by one of their sons, Benedict. So I wanted, as with most of my books, I wanted it to be worth buying just for the pictures, even if someone didn't read the text, you know, and Lost Art Press. Chris designed the book and Megan edited it and they made it so much better than it would have been. And it's been a wonderful partnership, collaboration. That sounds great. And I'm sure I'll be getting a copy at some time. And then maybe putting you on the spot, you know, just as a sort of final question, you know, as a, as an author and a reader, as well as a woodworker, is there a book out there that you wish you'd written? If you could give a, you know, one recommendation to, to the listeners and say, that's the book that I wish I'd uh, written. Is there anything you could suggest? Off the top of my head? Yeah, I would say shop class as soul craft, you know, totally take my hat off to Matthew Crawford. I mean, there are things about it that drive me crazy as well, but I just think it is a masterwork in part because anyone can read it. You can read it if you have a doctorate in classical philosophy, whatever, you know, and you can read it if you have a high school diploma or don't have a high school diploma, but are a basic reader of English. It's written to be intelligible to people across the board. You might have to look up a few words, but there are things called dictionaries. And then, of course, there are online dictionaries now. And I just think it's one of the most incisive and brilliant analyses of craft and the prejudices against body work that I have ever read. And so of all the books maybe that I might have aspired to write and been capable of writing, although I don't, I didn't ever get a doctorate and I didn't, you know, I had, I was offered a fellowship to the University of Chicago for my master's, but I didn't take it. 
I don't have his background academically and intellectually, but we have related backgrounds. And I just think he did a brilliant job of analyzing, arguing, and communicating. Fantastic, Nancy. And thank you very much for that recommendation. And I also think thank you very much for your time, for you know generously giving your time to this interview. I know we've gone on for quite a bit. And I've really enjoyed it. I've lost track, I'm afraid. (laughs) I have to get back to drawing a kitchen. (laughs) 100%. So thank you very much. And, you know, it's been been wonderful talking to you. And and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, likewise. I hope we get to meet in person some year. I hope the world gets back to normal and those opportunities come around. 2020 has been absolutely surreal and you know when i watch the stuff like the fires at the moment and the hurricanes and whatever in in your part of the world it's also it's been particularly tough it just the mind boggles i think if we'd sat at the new year's party and asked what we were expecting from 2020 this certainly wasn't on my order list (laughs) nope